The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in April 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the playwright, the screenwriter, the author, Paul Rudnick. Welcome, Paul. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Let me just go through a few of your credits. Currently running at Lincoln Center Theatre at the Mitzi Newhouse, The New Century, a new play. We'll talk about that in a moment. Other shows include Regrets Only, Valhalla, Rude Entertainment, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, The Naked Truth. Jeffrey, a Broadway show, I Hate Hamlet, and your first show, Poor Little Lambs. The New Century, I'm not going to try to describe it except to read a little bit from the publicist release, which kind of sets it up, and then we'll take it from there. The New Century is a series of four short plays which feature everyone from a concerned Long Island mother of at least three gay children to an accomplished Midwestern craftswoman to one of Mr. Rudnick's favorites, Mr. Charles, a flamboyant resident of Palm Beach. Ultimately, all of these delicious and distraught people collide under surprising and comic circumstances, and we discover just where our new century might be heading. It's a comedy, to say the least, but it has a lot of underlying themes to it, one of which is certainly a gay theme, and most of your, or not most, but many of your works are, are on, on gay subjects. But there's also a lot of themes that are just about human relationships, parents to children, relationships between people. Absolutely. Yeah, the new century is very difficult to describe because it's a set of plays that I've been working on for the past 10 years. Mr. Charles goes back probably the longest, and another piece called Pride and Joy that's being gloriously embodied by Linda Lavin was first seen a couple of years ago very briefly at the Tribeca Theater Festival, and the two additional plays that make up the second act are brand new. So I had received a call about maybe a year ago from Andre Bishop, the amazing artistic director of Lincoln Center, asking about a couple of the plays and wanted to know if there were any others, and I said there certainly can be. So I said to see if I could bring these very disparate works into something that would resemble a satisfying meal. So that was the goal. And I just am insane over the production that I've been given. You say to combine them into a meal, and you talked about the time frame. When plays are written, each play is sort of its own world in and of itself. What did it take to combine Mr. Charles, who is who was written 10 years ago with the character that Linda Lavin plays, how do you get them all into one play when they weren't necessarily written to ever share the stage together? Well, that was daunting, but what they share is that of the three central characters, I adore them all. They were people I loved spe- I loved writing, I loved spending time with, and I thought, okay, what if I could introduce them? What if I was the host? What if this was some sort of meta cocktail party? And I tried to come up with the one place where they might intersect, because the third, well, Helene Nadler, who's played by Linda, is a Massapequa matron. Peter Bartlett is playing Mr. Charles, who lives in exile in Palm Beach, where he has his own very low-rent cable access show. And the third lead is played by Jane Howdyshell, who's a Barbara Ellen Diggs, a craftsperson from Decatur, Illinois. So it seemed very unlikely that these lives would ever intersect any place but New York. And I thought, because most of my work ends up being Valentine's to, to New York. And I thought, yeah, that's where these people might find each other and might become very improbable, but oddly affectionate friends. So that became a kind of 
delicious challenge to see, okay, what's the location? What Make sure there's a solid reason for these lives to collide. And in the last play, which is called The New Century, that gives the, the evening its title, that's where they end up. I don't want to give away too much, but it's... Um, yeah, I've been very pleased at how at how satisfying it feels and how I think the audience becomes so fond of these characters that when they get to watch them meet, there's a, a certain real pleasure in that, a sense of, ah, look, oh, I'm so glad they, they like each other. Well, the first scene, the first act called Pride and Joy is the Linda Lavin scene where she plays Helene Nadler, and it's set in Massapequa, Long Island, which is the land of Jerry Seinfeld, Alec Baldwin and his brothers, his siblings, also Jory Betafuco. Why, why Massapequa? Well, I have plenty of relatives from Long Island, <laughs> and from Queens, and from Jersey, so it's not unfamiliar. And it's funny, whenever my relatives see my plays which, with characters like Helene, they enjoy them, and they never recognize themselves for a second, even their syntax, which is wonderfully Long Island. So that it's just, it's a, it's a place I kind of know and cherish, and it's, Lord knows, a shopping capital. <laughs> I think my, uh, there was a series of outlet stores near Massapequa, and my favorite one was called Girl Meets Buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was. I come from a family that not only lives to shop, but had there's a, a kind of sacred element to to that level of of retail um, or wholesale. But it's uh, it's just I don't know. I, I wanted that play very much to be a tribute to a certain kind of very smart, very shrewd, very skeptical Jewish woman like my mom and her sisters. And Linda Lavin is just, it's a master class in, in comic acting. A, a woman who reeks Chanel and Gucci and, and, and Ralph Lauren. Yeah. yeah. And, but who, and nothing gets past her. Mm-hmm. You know, because I love that it was something that was very important. And my family was a sense of humor as a balance wheel, as the, the way to not go crazy, the way not to let the world drive you over the brink. And I think that's a real asset to the women of Massapequa. And very different than Jane Howdy Shell's character, who uh, is the third act, the, what, what opens after intermission, uh, a municipal building in Decatur, Illinois. And she is just, I guess, kind of the antithesis in terms of style and appearance. Oh, sure. She's pure Midwest and she's craft crazed, which I don't know if people realize this. I'm sure everyone in the Midwest knows and elsewhere, too, that crafts are now this billion-dollar American obsession that you can go on scrapbooking cruises. You can spend literally hundreds of thousands of dollars on sequins and beads and hot glue. And And my personal confession is that as a child, my mom did subscribe to the Ladies' Home Journal and Red Book, and I was fixated. I would pour, especially over the issues that would be that would weigh about 20 pounds and include directions for 501 collectibles you can make as Christmas gifts in August <laughs> out of felt and old Clorox bottles. I wouldn't make any of this, but there was a real fascination. And I didn't want to in any way patronize Barbara Ellen, that the Decatur character. I wanted to, to get at her degree of passion about why these items, why hand crocheting a tuxedo for her toaster meant so much to her, and was equal, as she puts it, crafts allow her to express herself and to create something worth dusting. And she's very proud of what she does. Oh, absolutely. And what amazes me is when she actually displays some of her handiwork to the audience, including toilet paper caddies and microwave bonnets. There are wonderful sighs of pleasure from all these savvy New Yorkers who were just creaming over a page in a scrapbook. So I think crafts have become the universal language. You mentioned earlier the time that you've lived with these characters. In the case of Mr. Charles, he goes back to about 98 
yeah. first at Ensemble Studio Theater and then subsequent productions, always Peter Bartlett. Oh, it was written directly for Peter Bartlett. I can't imagine it with anyone else. He's one of my very favorite actors, and he just, there's a comic command there and a style and a strength that I just have so admired and exploited over the years. And I wanted to find the most politically incorrect gay character possible because there's something that always irritates and even enrages me, which is that the notion that equality equals sameness, that in any civil rights movement, whether it's gay people, black people, women, that equality will demand a new conformity, that we somehow all aspire to a certain bland, mainstream ideal. And I think that's nonsense. And I think the gay world is as infinitely varied as as any other planet. And I wanted to, to salute that and to take a guy who's feeling a little adrift. I mean, Mr. Charles is someone given to tomato red linen blazers and Apache scarves and gingham shirts and an awful lot of gold bling. And I thought, there's now almost a shame or an embarrassment attached to a man like that. And I see him as far more heroic. And God knows Peter plays him as blissfully. And has he evolved in each of the incarnations of the play? Have Has the character changed at all? Or is it that the world has changed around him and you've tried to incorporate that in any way? I would say both. That It, it has been fascinating to watch the, the changes in the political climate over the years. He was always... Strangely, a shocking character. People, all the gay audience members would worry, was I exposing some dread secret of the gay community? And straight audience members would somehow worry that if they laughed at him, was that permitted in a climate of absolute political correctness? But I think especially thanks to Peter Bartlett, he wins them over every time. But you can tell now there's almost a little more worry, that there's a little sense that, okay, is should should gay role models now be a little more perfected a little more homogenized and that's why strangely the play feels almost more important than ever to me that sense that no 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 this man isn't a relic this man is not an embarrassment this man is someone who probably had a much tougher life than a lot of gay people nowadays and i think it's it's just important not to forget those guys in contrast pride and joy which is not as old a play originally was done, I believe, by Jackie Hoffman yes. in the first production, and certainly Jackie Hoffman and Linda Lavin are different people. How has that play or that character changed in those different incarnations? Well, in a couple of ways. First, because I had a nice a couple of years to, to polish the piece, because Jackie was absolutely sensational, but I was able to really get back to work on it. And because the character of Helene also appears now in the final play of the evening, which didn't exist back in the days of the, the Tribeca Theater Festival, I've taken full advantage of both Helene and Linda, because Linda is, my Lord, an inspiration. I, in fact, all the, the actors in this production have such finely honed kind of bullshit detectors, so if there was a line or even a syllable that felt a little awkward, I always knew it was my problem, not theirs, because they can make anything work, but they shouldn't have to. So it's those are the actors I think any playwright dreams of, people who who you follow, who you write up to. And so giving Linda new material has, I mean, that's an honor. The night that I saw the new century, the audience members ranged from people in their 20s to people in their 70s and everybody in between, straight, gay, just a, a completely homogenous mix. And I'd say pretty much universal laughter. What sort of reaction do you get from both straights and gays, and especially to the very flamboyant Mr. Charles, but all the other characters as well? What, what oh, kind of reactions? It varies, but, and, but it's funny. Sometimes I realize my, I can 
my prophecies, my gifts of prophecy can be so wrong. I was a little nervous about matinees when you can get quite elderly subscribers, and they've been some of our greatest and most raucous shows because everyone pretty much surrenders to Linda. She's just so irresistible. I think the audience also feels very taken care of with Linda. It's also direct address, so she really gets to talk to them one-on-one and acknowledge their fears or their nervousness. Um, in fact, there are sometimes they talk back to her, which I kind of love because it's a play where that's allowed. There's a moment in the third play where characters are kind of talking about what advice you might give to, to babies in the world about what they have to look forward to or not. And Linda sort of sighs and says, don't get old. And a woman in the first row said, that's very good advice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, thought that, I took that as a high compliment. Um, so that the audience is, it's one of my favorite kinds of la- breeds of laughter is kind of shocked and surprised laughter where people find pleasure and joy in something that they never imagined understanding, let alone laughing with and at. So we get a lot of that, which I love, that they just start roaring, sometimes against their better judgment. And as you say, the audiences have been very mixed. So it's sometimes with Mr. Charles, the gay audiences will be great. Sometimes they might be a little judgmental. We had a lot of um, wonderful kind of society ladies, and Mike, uh, over in one at one performance, they knew Mr. Charles backwards and forwards. And what's interesting is Sometimes with Jane, with with Barbara Allen Diggs, there's an initial sort of split second of apprehension because the character is not a New Yorker, and even more um, fearsomely, she's a Gentile. So for a New York theater <laughs> audience, that's far in turf, and Jane wins them over in about um, a, a millisecond. Well, they, they, again, the night that I saw, I was noticing the audience and. The Mitzi Newhouse is kind of almost theater in the round, not quite, yeah. but they're like a U-shape. So you can see the faces of people across oh, from yeah. you. And I was watching one couple I would judge in their 70s, and the woman was in hysterics almost beginning to end, <laughs> and the husband had a quizzical look. He would be looking around like, okay, everybody else is laughing. I guess I should laugh here. He didn't know quite what to make of it. So do you get any adverse reactions from either straights or gays, especially with Mr. Charles being such a stereotype? Oh, sure. No, and I always feel if I haven't offended someone and delighted someone else, my job is not done. Um, So, yeah, although it still, it always surprises me. One night I was sitting in the back row next to a couple, you know, sort of very well-to-do couple, probably in their late 60s, early 70s, and I wondered if the husband would be a little taken aback by this material, and he was my dream audience member. He kept saying things that felt scripted by my mother, at the very least, where he would say, well, let's see, are these plays all just independent things? Do they have nothing to do with each other? Not that that would be a bad thing. (laughs) And then at the end of the evening, he was clapping merrily, and he said, well, what a surprise. What a wonderful surprise. And I thought, you can come back any (laughs) time. But it is, I mean, it's comedy that has a certain extremes to it. And Mr. Charles definitely plays with the idea of all sorts of gay stereotypes. And that's what makes it edgy, and yet also, I think, delicious. But yeah, I welcome that. I think I've in most of my plays, I think I don't want anything to get too cozy. It's interesting that you talked about with Mr. Charles, you know, people immediately reacting to, is this a stereotype? How can they react to the stereotype? In that the other characters as well are easily stereotyped. The Midwestern craftswoman, the Massapequa matron, and it's about, in some cases, I guess, subverting the expectations of what we think of those people. So whether it's the New Yorkers seeing a Midwestern Gentile or New Yorkers seeing 
a Jewish woman who may be very much like them, they don't end up in the place you expect them to. Was that oh, a conscious well, effort? Thank you for saying it. Yeah, that's the absolute goal, is to, is to surprise you and to deepen these characters who might seem like types. And I think that's also very much a product of, of the work of, of Nicky Martin, the wonderful director, and the actors, that they wanted to be very careful not to cartoon these characters. So, and to let them seem familiar and then take all sorts of turns. And that's what's exciting to me, me as a writer because it's what makes me love these people and not regard and not patronize them. Let's talk a bit about you, Paul. You were born in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. In Piscataway, New Jersey. Yes, I was. And you had an early interest in theater. Tell us about your, your whole upbringing and how you ended up at Yale and... Well, Piscataway was is a is a New Jersey suburb, and it probably is best characterized by a billboard that was on one of our local highways, which featured a cartoon of two Native American braves with war paint and feathers, and one of them was shielding his eyes and peering into the distance and saying, "They went Piscataway," <laughs> and that's kind of how you get a sense of humor about <laughs> that was the big marketing <laughs> yeah. for Piscataway, New Jersey. <laughs> but Piscataway, well, Piscataway was famous for a couple of things. For a while, it was where the Trojans condom factory was. But that was later lured by the glitter of Trenton, which I've always loved. The Trenton City motto, which is emblazoned in neon on the bridge, if anyone's ever passed by, it says, Trenton makes, the world takes. You wonder, okay, if that's the slogan, what was the next runner-up? They went to Scataway. (laughs) But but Scataway also was famous for a while. Well, I don't know. Famous is the word, but noted for it was where they tested barcodes at my local strip mall many years ago when they were first trying that out. So, um, but Piscataway, to its credit, is a, was a very good place to be a kid. I mean, the suburbs are designed for the worship and coddling of children, and I was happy to oblige. But not necessarily a cultural capital. No, I wouldn't get that carried away. It, but <laughs> on the other hand, it was close to New York. So I and my parents were wonderful about always taking my brother and myself into the city for museums and for Broadway shows. And I remember traveling through the wasteland that is Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is where most people get their <laughs> image of New which Jersey. Is, which is where all the oil refineries are. And, That's know, a kind uh, word for yeah. it. It's where they seem to be burning something that uh-huh. had some evil purpose when it was alive. <laughs> um but there'd be big illuminated billboards for all the musicals, um, and I, w- I took note. But it was um, – so, yes, I always felt that at some point a shuttle would arrive, and, ca- and I'd climb aboard, and it would let- drop me off somewhere in Manhattan, and that's pretty much what happened. That was the goal. So it was very odd to be a theater rat, which I think it's truly odd for anyone in the world at any, <laughs> any time in recent memory, because it's such a, a minority passion – but that's what I kind of love about it. I think that people who work in the theater, people who go to the theater, they do it helplessly. They do it because they're not going to be enormous rewards. There's not going to be a lot of people to talk to except online and on the air. But they can't stay away. And that's, that's a very nice place to be. But were you first a performer and then lured or or veered into writing? Did you did you appear in shows in high school or in college? Yeah, I kind of did everything. I just wanted to be in around at theater. I do I think my mom has some strange composition I wrote when I was about six or seven about how I wanted to be a playwright and the odd thing is I had never seen a play at this point. So I was just some sort of savant emphasis on the idiot but it was um but yeah i mean i was a big drama club kid i um you know would do anything props 
oh my god that when I was uh, at college when I first I was at Yale as an undergraduate and there were wonderful people in the drama school the graduate program at that time including William Ivy Long who's gone on to be Broadway's premier costume designer but I started out at the Summer Cabaret, which was the tiny summer theater in, in New Haven, where I was William's assistant and the janitor. So I would clean the bathrooms and flick the bugs off the pastries before the customers noticed them. Well, as a patron at that time, that's a very disturbing story I know. To I'm hear. sorry. Don't blame me. <laughs> they did wonderful work, but the hygiene was not the issue. Uh, but no, that was and that I but that was what was so exciting for me was to meet people like William, like Wendy Wasserstein, Chris Durang, people who were serious about a life in the theater, people who meant it, people who were willing to upset their parents to that degree and to risk that level of of poverty and shame. So that was an inspiration. We hear Yale and we think Yale School of Drama, but you went undergraduate. You didn't choose to go to the graduate school for playwriting. That's a very gracious way of putting it. I was an undergrad. The drama major is tiny. There are like two or three drama majors at Yale College at any given time, and they discourage professional ambitions there. But you still have access to the drama school and to the people and to the personality. So it was kind of a wonderful blend. But I was way too impatient and way too lazy to think about four more years of school. So I just took off for New York. Were you writing plays, though, while you were in school? I was. I was. And uh, again, use the word play very loosely. I, when I was a senior, I, they switched advisors on me. I had a, a wonderful man named Howard Stein, who's just the, the most knowledgeable and gracious guy. And he left for another job at that point, and I was outraged that they had switched horses in midstream that way. And the new advisor was a perfectly nice man, but I was just stubborn and adolescent. So... For my senior project, I wrote a play that consisted of anything anyone had said to me over the previous weekend. And the play was called Dirt, because it was primarily gossip and filth. And uh, this was just a product, this was more a tantrum than a play. And I handed it in, very smugly, and the advisor called my bluff by deciding it was a brilliant work and needed to be staged. So I was (laughs) trapped. So what I ended up doing was... I talked one of the senior societies into lending me their little theater space, which was connected to kind of a ballroom, for one night. And I handed out flyers all over campus advertising a party with, most importantly, free alcohol and free snacks. And I had this big bash. Tons of people, hundreds of people showed up. And then at midnight, I made everyone sit down, and we had a staged reading of dirt. Um, And because I was nervous, and this is certainly carried over into my work today that people would ever get bored. So once in a while, I would have someone come out and sing a filthy song. There was one called I'm All You Can Eat for $1.29. <laughs> Sometimes I'd just have the actors turn into a game show where they would recite, you know, smutty jokes. But I just wanted to see if I could keep that, that crowd, that kind of rowdy party crowd, entertained. And I'm happy to say I got an A on my senior project. So I, while it can't be called a play, it certainly can be called a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> so when you got out of school, what was the next step? Then I moved into Manhattan, hoping to live in Manhattan was the primary that, goal. That was your career that goal. That was it. And I took shameless advantage again of William Ivy Long, who was living at the Chelsea Hotel, because his idol, who's that brilliant couturier named Charles James, was quite mad. 
um, lived there and William was sort of paying homage. So while William was getting a foothold at places like Playwrights Horizons and the Manhattan Theater Club, I would assist him, even though I was the most radically unskilled labor. If he gave me a piece of fabric, I would destroy it. And so he was just, it was more, it was kind of a mercy job. But I got to, again, I got to be around the theater. And I wrote a number of very early plays that weren't very good, but I, there was an early reading of one of the Playwrights Horizons. I, I started to learn how important it was to throw stuff out, that every word was far from golden, that it was going to be a, a long road. Um, but the first, my first produced play was called Poor Little Lambs, which was given an absolutely terrific production in the, in the 1980s. Excuse me. It was directed by Jack Hofsis, who had just come off The Elephant Man at that point. And it featured a lot of actors just starting out. Kevin Bacon was in it, and Bronson Pinchot, Blanche Baker, all sorts of terrific people. And it was a very critical learning experience because it was so well-produced and beautifully directed and acted that anything wrong with it was my fault. And while some of it was quite funny, and I think audiences enjoyed it, I, it was a very necessary slap in the face when it opened, because I realized, okay, this was not good enough. This was, you know, about maybe 50%. You realized, or did people tell you? Both. <laughs> people are always willing to share that sort of people. And by people, I guess we're talking about critics. Oh, or God, people in the audience God who cost you. Though I guess critics and people can be kind of a contradiction in terms. But it's, um, but yeah, no, no, no. It was one of those instances where, no, the audience response was, was actually very positive. But that can be lulling because that does not always necessarily mean that this is, is, is great work or even good work. So it was... Just a, a very young and very necessary moment of realizing, okay, if you really want to do this, if you want to try and be a playwright, you got a way long way to go. And you have to be willing to work extremely hard and face quite a bit of rejection and often justified rejection. I think that um, for myself, it's I, I learned how much I love rewriting. I like to fix things, especially with comedy. I think where the audience can be such an essential element. If something isn't working, if it's not playing... I love nothing more than getting in there and getting my hands dirty and making it work. Well, one thing that you did not mention was that Poor Little Lambs did win the Outer Critics Circle Award. So that was 1982. Here we are, 2008, you know, a quarter of a century later. Yeah. Would you ever be tempted to rewrite that? And if so, how would you redo it nowadays with 25 years of experience behind you? No, I think I, I learned my lesson. I think I've looked at the script. I never had it published because I just wasn't happy enough with it. Uh. Um and there's stuff in it that I think, okay, there you could see a germ of something. You would say, okay, maybe this guy is not completely talent-free. But it was uh, – but no, I think there's a certain point – I guess didn't Mel Brooks once said something about how there are certain ideas that you have to try over and over again until they're abandoned. And that's kind of how I feel. It's like, no, I learned from it. It was a wonderful personal experience. But and actually there was there was a moment while I was in rehearsal and I was – Uptown, and I was living in a very hideous studio apartment in the village, and it was broken into. And someone called by uh, the world's stupidest junkie, and the, some, a neighbor kindly called the police, and they arrested the junkie while he was in my apartment. And the phone rang, and it was my mother. And the cop picked up the phone, so my mother knew I'd been robbed before I did. 
But and the, the the saddest, the real pathos of this story comes from the fact that William Ivy Long had sent me as a birthday gift a rind, a diamond rhinestone, which was about four inches high. So this poor junkie thought he had found the hope diamond. <laughs> it was set for life. If only it wasn't plastic. Um, so that was interesting. That kind of real, I guess, wonderful town New York experience. But it was, yeah, I would not. I think that. If there's a statute of limitations on rewriting, and it's best let it be. Do you ever go back and revisit any of your work and rewrite for subsequent productions, or do you just kind of leave it once it's done, it's done? After a certain at a certain time, I will part on the new century. I was I was thrilled to be able to rewrite things from both Mister Charles and Pride and Joy to really polish them up and get them in ideal shape. Though I have the feeling this will this is their final form, but uh, the most of the other plays. They kind of are what they are, and I also um, you kind of want to honor who you were at that time and say, okay, it's funny, even with Jeffrey, um, people sometimes will ask me, they'll say, Jeffrey was a, a comedy that was set in the, the odd first era of AIDS, and people will say, gee, now we have all of this new medication and people are live happily living much longer lives. Don't you want to change the ending? And I wouldn't, I, that would seem blasphemous to me. I mean, I think you really also, you, my God, you want to honor the people who did die, the people who watched those people die, the people who were caught at one of the worst moments in, in, in history. And I thought the idea of changing that and, and, um, you know, glossing it up seemed, uh, quite horrific. So yeah, I think there's a point at which you just let things go. Talking about poor little lambs, you were saying, you know, you learned what had to happen. How much was it that you just had a self-realization of the kind of work you needed to do? Or were there people guiding you as a playwright to to suggest where you might do better or do differently? Oh, there were. I mean, because Jack Hofstis was a wonderful director. And, you know, real, I was so new. I was so green. That really helped me just with that initial process of, of what going into rehearsal with a new play was about what worked, what didn't, about shaping a, an evening. And and the actors as well. I'd never really worked with a group of actors, certainly not of that caliber, to see, okay, what could they teach me? You know, to learn how to listen, to learn why for me especially it's important to be at rehearsal every single day because sometimes I won't, I need to hear it so many times to realize what it needs, what the what that speech or that scene needs or what needs to be cut. Um so it was just the beginning. But also, I think other writers I know have benefited greatly from graduate programs, from study. I've always been way too stubborn for that. I have to make the biggest mistakes as publicly as possible. It's interesting that after that experience, uh, as we follow through your career, you turn to writing a novel. You didn't yep. rush back to the stage. And indeed, in terms of major stage credits, uh, it was it was almost nine years oh, before yeah. I Hate Hamlet. So was that a reaction to what had happened with the first play, or was it just life took you elsewhere? Partially, but it's also a reaction to the fact that then I wrote a whole batch of plays obsessively, and I threw them all out. I burned uh -huh. them because I realized that, no, just wanting to be a playwright was not enough. You have to actually have something to write about, something mm -hmm. worth saying. And it was quite traumatic, but again, deeply necessary, that sense. And there is nothing quite as richly and lastingly satisfying as taking, you know, 500 pages of bad plays and saying, thank God, no one will ever see these <laughs> and tossing them away. But it really, and it became, there was a moment where I said, I have to stop. This is actually physically unhealthy. And I'd never imagined writing a novel. And for the most basic infantile reason imaginable, 
the sheer amount of typing involved. But plays, you just fill the center of the page. You've got all that nice white space. <laughs> a novel felt like, oh, my God, I'll have to learn more words. But suddenly I, I, I tried it. I thought, okay, let's give it a shot. Who knows? And I wrote two books. I wrote one called Social Disease and one called I'll Take It. And it was a wonderful experience. I realized suddenly I decided I was a novelist and imagined I'd need a new wardrobe at the very least. <laughs> and I'd have whole new worlds of people to feel jealous of and hate. Um, but And then suddenly, just as I decided I was a novelist, I, star- I moved into John Barrymore's old apartment. This was this top floor of a brownstone right off Washington Square. It was this glorious roost, and it was where Barrymore had lived at the practically the little after the turn of the century when he was playing Hamlet uptown and really in, in his real glory days. And I found this place, and it just started demanding to be written about because it was a kind had a kind of bastard Jacobean architecture that I just adored, and it was so atmospheric. And also, when I was thinking about taking the apartment, I mentioned it to this wonderfully eccentric woman named Helen Merrill, who was my agent at the time, who was a German emigre. And I said it was John Barrymore's apartment, and she looked at me and said, well, what, Nick? Perhaps you will find my hairpins. <laughs> and it turned out that she had had an affair in the apartment with Barrymore's son-in-law, who was married to Diana Barrymore, his troubled daughter. So suddenly the, the karmic factors became quite overwhelming, and I thought, okay, I've got to write about this. This has been delivered to me for a reason. And it started as a novel, and then quickly I thought, wait, this is... It's all the action seems to be set in a single location. It's all about theater people. This wants to be a play. And even though I'd left the theater to very little fanfare, I suddenly thought, okay, I guess I'm back. And that was how I hit Hamlet began. It was such a, it's such a theater tale. And then Lord knows it continued in that vein. Well, let's talk about that vein because it's a play that, not necessarily for the right reasons, found itself on the front page of the New York Post at one point. Um, after having left theater for a while, you, you, you came back, you have a show on Broadway, got nice notices, big star, Nicole Williamson, a young emerging star, Evan Handler, but things, uh, didn't Took run a turn. <laughs> yes, no, it was quite, it was a wild ride. And it was, again, I was given the most glorious production and it was, um, but we needed a star to play Barrymore. You needed someone capable of, of, if you're, if you're, if you're, Playing a star, you kind of need a star. Plus, he needed to be have a certain Shakespearean scale to him. And Nickel was known for that. Nickel was also known for all kinds of dementia. But that was we we put sort of elided at the at the moment. But as rehearsals progressed, Nickel became more and more insane. Is the kind word he um, did not enjoy being on stage with other people. And Evan Handler was a saint. He was not only giving a wonderful performance; he was putting up with all sorts of antics off stage and Nichols took to calling me at three in the morning and he'd always say oh I haven't woken you have I and I'd always of course deny that and he would have brilliant inspirations one being that he would play both leading roles Evans and his own and it was the kind of question that you did not even know how to answer because the characters have all these scenes together and they duel with swords and I wasn't quite clear on as to how Nickel would manage that but Nickel had only one issue, which was he said, oh, I, dear boy, I know what you're thinking, that the Evans role is that of a 26-year-old, and will the audience believe me as 26? He was in his 50s at this time. And then he paused for a moment, and he said, no, of course, from the stage, if they'll, I can look any age I, I want to. So that was the moment where I thought, okay, 
do I jump out the window? Do I protest? Or do I just see what happens? So I, I took curtain number three. <laughs> Did you ever hear these ideas during the day or only at three in the morning? <laughs> well, Nickel, because he was a star of that kind of, of true lunacy, it became all about keeping him in the room. He would quit so every few hours and toss on his hat and walk out. So if he would come back, that was already a prize. So it was a, a lesson in sort of true horrific star behavior. You know, if you want, that can be studied by, by anyone wanting to wanting a real reputation. Um, and then once the show was up and running, what happened was one night during that duel, the climax is the first act, which Nickel refused to rehearse, among other things, um, he took out after Evan and stabbed him and drew blood. And Evan quite wisely left the stage, did not finish that performance or the run of the play. And I cannot blame him. He was had put up with far too much already. But the next morning, oh, well, no, later that night, I remember I ran into the show's press agent. I was not at that show. And he said, he started telling me the tale, saying, Paul, what did you hear? What happened to your play? And I said, no. And he said, Nichols stabbed Evan. And so I thought, is, is he alive? And then it turned out that Jerzy Kaczynski, the Polish novelist, had chosen that evening to commit suicide in his bathtub. And that was the only thing that kept the I Hate Hamlet tale off the front page of the Times. But the next day, it was the full front page of the Post, with a big picture of Nickel with a sword, and the headline, I Hit Hamlet. And the subhead, which I have always felt was true New, New York Post poetry, star swats actor on the butt. <laughs> and the story just took hold, I think, because people were so bored with Desert Storm at that point. So there were news crews at the theater every night. I would get calls from all press all over the world. It was just nuts. And then and Nickel was just in clover at that point. He would lead the audience and sing-alongs of Happy Days Are Here Again. He would wish everyone uh, a great evening and say, oh, everyone go home and enjoy a nice, juicy slice of sexual intercourse. And so I've, I've never seen a guy quite that happy. I assume that was not in the script. No. Um, um, Nickel had long departed from the script. But, uh, but happily and gratifyingly, the play is now performed all over the world. Although every once in a while, I'll get calls from the actress playing Barrymore. And they'll say, you know, I'm not a ham. And I'm not, st- not going to pull any star behavior on you. But could I have some additional lines? And that's always a good moment to hang up the phone. But, you know, I've always wondered, oh, because during the rehearsal process, we did have a seance in my in the Barrymore apartment to contact the spirit of Barrymore. And Celeste Holm was in the cast, Jane Adams, wonderful people. And we gathered around the table and we'd hired a kind of budget medium to guide us whose rates went up every 15 minutes. And she had us all close our eyes and chant. And Nickel kept pointing to the door to the roof and saying, Come, Barrymore, and that sort of thing. And finally, the door did open about an eighth of an inch, which might have been the product of kind of a cross breeze and and Nickel's hot air. But there was a sense that maybe Barrymore had decided to wreak a little havoc. And he certainly had a high old time. Now, I've never footnoted one of our interviews, but I should direct people who are more interested in this to a wonderful piece you wrote recently in The New Yorker, if, if they've still got it around, about this whole experience. But you, you approach it now with such humor. I'm just curious as to what was the experience then? Did you just have to laugh? Or you're still a young playwright with a play on Broadway that is suddenly being commandeered for 
strange purposes and taking on a life of its own. What what was your frame of mind at it this was, point? It was maddening. I remember people kept coming up to me and saying, oh, Paul, this will be such great material for your memoirs. And I think, is that what they told people getting off the lifeboats on the Titanic? You know, <laughs> lucky you. And so it was, but it did, there was a point at which I just had to laugh and collapse because it was just too nuts. And it's when you can become very grateful for your friends and for late night phone calls. And it, but it was crazy because it, yeah, it was a play on Broadway and it was a, a certain kind of comic nightmare. So it was, but actually again, a valuable lesson in certain ways because it was um it guided me in in writing my next play certainly which was Jeffrey and in terms of expectations and I think I wanted to be very careful not to get caught up in a sense that the goal was the externals that gee a, a play on Broadway that was what you wanted and I thought no 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 the goal is actually write a decent play and it doesn't matter where they do it and that maybe something without a big insane english star might be a good idea next time out so um so yeah there was it was it was funny and terrifying and a lesson all in one that i you know continue to learn from and, and at what point in the run did this happen and how did it affect the rest of the run of the play uh the rest of the run then just became hostage to nickel because we thought oh my god should we fire him and bring him up on charges. But on the other hand, no other star would dare take over on the end. Nickel had become a, a strange sort of sideshow attraction at this point. So it eventually kind of wobbled to a close. And there was on the closing night, I remember I went to say goodbye to the rest of the cast. But Nickel and I were not speaking at this point, which pretty much his choice, because the last time when I'd gone to his dressing room to try and forge some vestige of a relationship, he punched me. And because he was older and wobbly and incredibly drunk at the time, he sort of missed my my jaw and connected with my shoulder, which really was not particularly painful. But on the other hand, a star had never punched me before. So I thought, (laughs) well, this is a keepsake moment. Um, But on that final night, as I was going past his dressing room, first I saw his blood pressure medication on a tiny table outside the door, and I did think about replacing it with antifreeze or rat poison <laughs> or something. And then I realized, no, that, nothing could kill that. And then his door swung open, and we did stand face to face. And he looked at me, and he sort of smiled, not in a particularly malicious way. There was just this sense of distance between us, as if we were just an ocean apart. And he said sort of quietly he said you knew this was going to happen and then he shut the door and I thought okay if if nothing else at least the anecdote has a, has a, has a finish <laughs> now has a button on it but it was so it's fascinating and, and again that's why I wrote the piece in the New Yorker because there have been many versions of this story told over the years and probably plenty more to come but it was um, yeah it just felt very I, I did try to think of it in a kind of Moss Hart Act One way. <laughs> you knew this was going to happen. That'd be a good name for another play, wouldn't it? <laughs> or perhaps something on a tombstone. <laughs> let's let's talk about Jeffrey, which was the year later, nineteen ninety-two, for which you did win the Obie and the Outer Critics Circle Awards. And what experience did you have in writing that? What did you learn from your experiences with Nicole Williamson and that whole thing that you said it influenced later on? How, how did that work? Well, Jeffrey was blissful. I wrote that play over the course of probably a year or more, and we had a series of readings using just wonderful actors and people who were not yet kind of what they became. Nathan Lane did a lot of the early readings, Harriet Harris, and 
it was a very different structure for me. It's a very episodic play. It travels all over Manhattan. And I just said, okay, I'm going to write about what I really feel like. I'm going to write about the world as I know it. I'm going to write about New York in the age of AIDS. I'm going to try to pay some sort of tribute to what people were going through and to a, a sense of humor that is particularly gay, particularly in New York, you name it. But I knew so many people who were behaving so extraordinarily well against the worst possible obstacles, both in terms of the illness ex- itself and in terms of what was at that time global ignorance and global fear and global hatred. And I thought, no, I have to write about this. I have to write about these people. And I mean, I felt privileged to do so. I thought, I have to get this right. And in a, that, was, I, that was why I was grateful for the earlier playwriting experiences, because I thought, I hope I'm good enough to write about these people, because you don't want to make mistakes. This meant too much to me. This meant too much to them. I did not want to misrepresent anyone. I wanted to do them justice. And no theater in New York would, or anywhere else in the country, would go anywhere near that play. My Helen, my agent, was wonderful about sending it out. We got every possible rejection letter, even from artistic directors who would say, gee, I love this play, but our audience would never stand for it. And this was before the big wave of, of gay plays. Well, what was it they wouldn't stand for? I mean, when you hear, remembering it was a very different time, and you hear right. the phrase, even romantic comedy, set in the age of AIDS, were they just afraid of combining comedy and the topic of AIDS? Both. They were afraid of, of the style, of the tone of the piece. They were afraid of a play with leading gay characters. They were even afraid of, I think, the, at that point, there had been As Is in The Normal Heart. As Is in The Normal Heart it would, it were about 87. Yeah. The film started, Longtime Companion was about 89. Yeah. So. And those were all extraordinary works, but also quite somber, and, and rightly so. I think Jeffrey could not have happened without those earlier works that said, okay, this is what's going on. That's why theater was strangely but truly exciting at that point, because it was the only place where AIDS was being discussed, where this particular Holocaust was being dealt with almost on any level. The the mainstream press was staying far away, and at that time, movies and television were even avoiding it, so that I remember going to the normal heart when the, the statistics for people who were sick and dying were painted on the walls of the set and changed practically daily, and this was the only place where you could get really accurate information. I mean, that's not only a terrific play, it was an absolutely vital play to, for for anyone, anyone, period, at that time, but certainly for, for gay men in New York. Um, so I, yeah, I rode that wave. I mean, it was a time when theater was suddenly essential in a way it has had not been for many years and maybe hasn't been since. And there was a real climate of, of freedom that it was, I think AIDS, if, there, if it can be said to have any benefit, it was that AIDS made the closet particularly obscene. It was... When you are facing real life and death issues, it no longer matters so much, you know, what your Aunt Fanny thinks of the way you live your life. So I started to work on, on Jeffrey, and which there was, at one point I was kept changing the title. I was going to call it Keep It In Your Pants at one point. But I finally settled on Jeffrey because oh, this is what Jack Fertel, one of our producers and just the most wonderful man who runs the Encore series, once told me that he liked the title because he said he knew it was a gay character, but he wasn't sure why he knew that. <laughs> but that Jeffrey somehow <laughs> Jeffrey felt was a gay name. Jeffrey was a gay name. <laughs> and it's one of those things that I totally understood what he meant and agreed wholeheartedly. But um, finally, Helen took the script and walked it over to the WPA Theater, which was on 23rd Street at that point. Close to her office. Exactly. About half a block away was run by this amazing man named Kyle Rennick. 
practically single-handedly. Howard Ashman, who had founded the theater with Kyle, um, had died of AIDS, and he's that the you know extraordinary lyricist and and playwright as well. Um, and she said, "I'm not leaving your office until you read this play." And he, God bless him, for the rest of my life, um, said yes and took a chance. And it was going, supposed to be, I think, a three-week run. And all the actors in New York were warned away from it because the roles were gay, because it was a comedy about AIDS, you name it. It was just verboten, which was why I was and remain so eternally grateful to the, the cast, the people that showed up, the people who said, I don't care. And they were just the best people around that. Edward Hibbert, Harriet Harris. Harriet played, all the, I don't remember how many roles in it, but I just kept writing her more parts so that she'd stay. You know, so, and there all, I remember there was one scene, and Harriet's also so smart that there was a scene that was set in a, um, in a men's downtown sex club, and it wasn't quite working. And so I said, Harriet, you're, be my dramaturg. What would you do to fix this scene? And she said, Paul, I would put me in it. I said, Harriet, I would love nothing more, but it's a men's sex club. And she said, I can play a strange towel boy. Um, <laughs> and I was tempted, but I didn't quite go that far. But so, and Brian Batt was in it, who's now on Mad Men, and, you know, has starred in all sorts of Broadway shows. So it was just John Michael Higgins, Tom Hewitt, all these great actors. And I was so... Oh, my God, touched by them, both by their talent and the fact that they were willing to be in this play. And then it opened and shockingly became a commercial success, that there were people we noticed during previews who kept coming back again and again to see it. And it was, and this was, again, part of the the climate in, in New York at that time, a sense of almost of a town meeting of people saying, oh, my God, this is what I've been thinking. These are the people I know, people who were so relieved to be able to laugh, to find that there were other people willing to laugh at the horrors everyone was going through. And not just gay audiences. I mean, the subscriber base at the WPA was average age Jurassic. And they were some of our best crowds because these were people who understood illness and who understood death. And so it was just the most, remains the most extraordinary experience of my life, just that the play took hold, that I worked with Chris Ashley for the first time, who's a wonderful director, who's now the artistic director at La Jolla, and that it it worked. I remember sitting in the uh, in the back of the house during previews and thinking, oh my God, if people don't like this, it's going to hurt, because I... It was the first time when I experienced something that I was proud of, that I really felt, oh, okay, this is this is something I might be able to do. And that that made all the difference in the world. We're already running short on time. And before we get to your other plays, we, of course, have to mention your other career as a screenwriter. But I'm very curious about another sidelight that you took on through this period, which is the pseudonym of Libby Gelman Waxner, columnist for Premier Magazine for many years. And I'm just wondering about the experience of writing essentially in character, which in a way relates, whether it's to being a screenwriter or, or a playwright, you were writing your own character for a long period of time. Was it, was it like being in your own long-running play? Oh, absolutely. It was great because, well, Premier Magazine, which sadly folded last year, but they came to me and asked very early on in their existence, was I interested in being a film critic? And I thought, well, the world really has way too many film critics. So I said, what about someone a tad fictional? 
And they said, okay. So Libby Gelman Waxner burst forth, and she was this Upper East Side Manhattan housewife and assistant buyer in Junior's Activewear, married to an orthodontist with two perfect children. And she viewed movies pretty much through who she was physically attracted to, what items of clothing the female star was wearing that Libby wanted to own, and how which which real estate she coveted. And she just, I just began channeling her. And it was so much fun because she could say the most wildly, politically obscene things and get away with it. And before people realized that it was a pseudonym, Libby also would get some wonderful letters and scarily marriage proposals, one from a sailor on a destroyer. And she also would get outrage letters from people saying, how can you call yourself a serious film critic? All you do is write about your kids and your husband. You should read a little Francois Truffaut. I thought the degree of not getting it was sort of breathtaking. <laughs> but, but it was but fun. Talk about being inside of a character. Exactly. So she was, there was my, that was my one-woman show, and long-running, God knows. But it was fun because, and I thought, no, I... I, I could, would never value my opinion enough to become a, a regular critic, but I thought Libby certainly had a few things to say. It shows you were doing your job well if people believed it. Oh, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, that was... But, and I, there was one guy who wrote and said that he was um, a senior at Yale, a part-time male model, and was willing to dump his girlfriend if Libby would go out with him. <laughs> and so I wrote back thinking it was all a lie. And he sent me his photo. It was all true. Then a few years later, I met the guy socially, a terrific man. And we looked at each other and realized, okay, which was more embarrassing, writing a letter to a f- fictional female film critic or being a female fictional <laughs> film critic? <laughs> it was kind of a draw. But it was, it, it, there was a strange, multi-textured quality to those years. Before we wrap up, I want to talk to you about rewriting the book of Genesis from the Bible, uh, where you rewrote the Adam and Eve story to two same-sex couples, Adam and Steve and Jane and Mabel, about a decade ago, the most fabulous story ever told. What possessed you to do that in the first place? <laughs> oh, there was a moment when Chris Ashley, the, the director of Jeffrey and I, were sitting at the Empire Diner where we would hang out because it was near the WPA Theater. And which I was talking about what I might write next. And we suddenly, some, you know, Southern evangelist had once again brought up that admonition that God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And I said, well, what if he did make Adam and Steve? And that I was the only time in my life where I realized instantly, oh, my God, I have to write this play, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. And so I plowed ahead, and it was... What I ca- became about was actually oddly less gay issues than really writing about God, because I realized by that point, in uh, certainly in Manhattan history, sex was such small change. No one was embarrassed by sex. No one... You would go on any... On Dr. Phil on anything and blurt out the most, you know humiliating details of your sex life, but God was still somewhat taboo. That, if you actually went into a cocktail party and said, okay, who believes in God? Raise your hand. That would make people quite apprehensive. And that's where I tend to write, what I tend to write towards. If it makes people nervous and uncomfortable, it will usually be funny. So I thought, oh, okay, let's write about God and faith. And through the prism of gay experience of the people who tend to be left out of the Bible. So that's how Most Fabulous Story came to be and how I got so much wonderful hate mail from people who (laughs) would say always, "Um, Jesus is all loving and all compassionate, and he hates your guts and wants you to burn in hell. (laughs) Love (laughs) whomever. (laughs) And all the postcards would tend to be identical because religious groups would usually do mass mailings. Um, But I think Terrence McNally, who at the same time had written Corpus Christi, he took a lot more heat than I did. So, So God bless Terrence. 
literally. Um, but again, we did that play at, at the New York Theatre Workshop and with the most wonderful cast. Peter Bartlett was in it, Lisa Crone, Alan Tudyk, all sorts of great people. So I've been very lucky with my, my productions. Also at New York Theatre Workshop, a few years later, you managed to combine Mad King Ludwig of Bavaria with a teenager in Texas from a completely different era in in the play Valhalla. How did you come up with that juxtaposition of those two characters? Lord only knows. It was no, actually, I do know. It was um, two of my heroes, actually, one of which was Ludwig, because he seemed like oddly, a man of the theater, that he built these extraordinary castles all across Bavaria, one of which is the model for Cinderella's castle at Disneyland. And they were designed primarily by theater designers. And I just felt this strange kinship with Ludwig. And he also, there was a, he's had an extraordinary life where he was not a very good king, but he was a wonderful fairy tale figure. And he was eventually taken off the throne and declared insane and committed suicide or perhaps was murdered about a day later. So I thought, this is a vivid character, and there's been many, many books and plays and operas written about him. But I thought, I didn't want to just write a historical portrait, because I thought if it's going to be a play, it needs a theatrical reason to exist, something that would that you couldn't get from a written biography. And there was another story, and this was pure inspiration. It's in no way really based on this man. But a soldier who during the Second World War began looting, which was actually quite common. People, soldiers who had access to precious artworks throughout Europe and who would sometimes steal them and sell them on the black market. But the guy who interested me was had taken a couple of items from a church or a church sanctuary, which included an encrusted Bible that was gold with diamonds and rubies all over it, and also a very valuable comb and a chalice. And it was actually very simple. He mailed them back to himself in Texas, and he never tried to sell them. And that was what interested me. He ended up going back to his small town and living out his life there. But he would sometimes, and he ran the family hardware store, and he would sometimes take these items out from underneath the counter at the hardware store where he had them wrapped in burlap. And he would ask people, do you want to see something beautiful? And that intrigued me because I thought this guy was not a common thief. This guy was not looking to make a buck. This guy was searching for a way to run a hardware store in a small town in Texas and still have some vestige of, of glory, of, of greatness, of art. And I thought that there, if I could find a link between that American soldier in the American 40s and King Ludwig, that might be a play. And to this day, people argue over whether it was or not. But it was, you know, it was a kind of loony um, prospect. But that was, of course, what, what attracted me. And that's how Valhalla came to be. And oddly, it was we had Chris Ashley again directed a terrific first production. And the play was very, it was quite controversial. People hated it. People adored it all over the map. But it's been done a lot all across the country now, which has, has pleased me that often sometimes in tiny productions, because it's a play with all sorts of cross casting, and it can be done with very lavish costumes or almost on a bare stage. So it was just a real, you know, take a chance. That's one of the other things I keep doing. And sometimes it means I can fall on my face rather radically, but it's, uh, I, but I don't regret it. Well, in the introduction, I uh, characterized you as a playwright, as a screenwriter, and as an author. And we talked briefly about being an author, and not at all really about being a screenwriter, but a lot about being a playwright. And we certainly appreciate your being with us today, Paul. I just want to reiterate that your new show, The New Century, is currently running at Lincoln Center Theater, the Mitzi Newhouse Theater here in New York. And thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much.
Thanks, Paul. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.